2: Three great words. Free. Fries. Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum
1: purchase. Bell one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through twelve thirty one twenty four. 24 Excludes tax. Must update rewards.
0: Calling all History Extra podcast listeners. We want to hear from you. We're currently conducting some research about our podcast. So please enter our survey for your chance to win a £100 Waterstones gift card. It shouldn't take any longer than 10 minutes, and as a thank you for taking part, UK residents who complete the survey will be given the opportunity to enter our prize draw for the chance to win one of two 100 pound e-gift cards to spend at Waterstones. The survey will be available to complete until 11:59 p.m. on Sunday the 4th of October 2020. You can find the link in our episode description. <music> And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's podcast guest is the writer Kate Summerscale. Known for her historical true crime books, including The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher and The Wicked Boy, Kate has now turned her eye to the world of the paranormal for her latest book, The Haunting of Alma Fielding. She joined me to discuss the strange case that inspired her book and why 1930s Britain was enthralled by the supernatural. Before we start today's episode, we've got a quick favour to ask. We're working really hard at the moment to give you the most interesting range of podcasts we can. If you like what we're doing, then please do give us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here's Kate Summerscale. The best thing probably to start us off on this topic is if you could introduce us to the story of Alma Fielding. Give us the opening gambit, as it were, for your new book.
3: Well, it's the story of um, a housewife in Croydon, a working-class housewife, in 1938, who rang the Sunday Pictorial newspaper one Saturday to report that she had a poltergeist in her house, and she was terrified, and her husband, her son, and her lodger all testified that this um, evil spirit was throwing things around, smashing crockery and um, breaking ornaments. And uh, the story was investigated by a well-known ghost hunter, a Hungarian called Nandor Fodor. And in this book, I aim to recreate um, his investigation and to explore the quite radical and uh, scandalous ideas that he developed about what the poltergeist stemmed from and what had happened in Alma Fielding's life.
0: Um, this is such a remarkable case that I imagine it's it's the kind of story that nonfiction writers would dream of. How did you first come across it, and what made you think yes, this would be a great book?
3: Well, I I was I did quite a lot of reading about poltergeists and psychical investigators and ghost hunters in the late nineteenth century to start with, and then I realised that there was quite a lot going on in the nineteen thirties too, and it struck me as Uh, more surprising and strange to me I hadn't known about this phenomenon all the ghosts there were in Britain and the Mm -hmm. obsession with poltergeists Uh, so I read around there until I came across Fodor's own book about this case which it took him 20 years to get published Um, the the case uh, was uh, so sort of upsetting to the Psychical Research Institute in London, where he worked, that he was expelled from the Institute in the summer of 1938 because of it. And uh, so the the story lay dormant for a while. And by the time his book was published, uh, psychical research was not such a hot topic and it sort of languished, rather. So it um, it was by unearthing his book in the first instance and then thinking... Uh, how would I kind of verify the book itself and looking for the original documents of the investigation, which I found in Cambridge and New York. um, And so that I was able to sort of see the first hand sources as well as his report of what happened.
0: I'd like to ask you some more about some of those sources later. But um, just to pick up on a point you mentioned there, I think we don't really think of the the 20th century as a time of paranormal um, activity and the supernatural because it it seems too modern for that almost. Um, What can you tell us about the world of paranormal investigation in the 1930s and why the 30s was such a key time for this?
3: Well, there was a huge um, rise in spiritualism after the First World War, which was a belief that the dead could communicate with the living, uh, principally through seances. And at the same time, there was a kind of parallel science of the spiritual. And the people who worked in psychical research, the ghost hunters, some of them were very serious about really finding scientific explanations for paranormal events and there was a lot of overlap between um, the psychical research and psychoanalysis for example all these sort of experimental sciences that um, were partly to do with physics in some cases and partly to do with psychology so there was a lot of sort of fringe work and they were all sort of equally uh mistrusted and fascinating to the public and the newspapers were full of reports about experiments in telepathy and astral projection and fortune telling and astrology and so it was was a fringe science but very much aspiring to be a science Mm. and uh, taken seriously by many including Mm. the likes of Arthur Conan Doyle. And uh, Sir Oliver Lodge, who was a great pioneer of radio waves, um, and I, I suppose it was a time when there were people started to have radios in their homes, well, most people did, and telephones, and even televisions, and all of these devices had some kind of almost supernatural quality to them where you could uh, your voice could be disembodied and transported across continents Um, and so there was some sort of plausibility to the idea that, that that ghosts might exist and just we just hadn't discovered the method of transmission the way in which the dead were able to speak to us and convey their messages.
0: So it was more about a kind of open mindedness, an open mindedness to ideas than a gullibility. You yes,
3: say? I'd say that would be the way that, the, that most of the people who are interested in psychical research thought, thought of themselves as just open to the possibility, same sorts of possibilities that, um, that those experimenting in the world of physics and quantum theory and so on were just sort of playing with ideas and, and um, not being closed minded about only the provable physical world is, is real.
0: One of the most interesting aspects of the book is that peppered throughout it are these um, tiny kind of anecdotes of other people that Fodor investigated and other cases that he looked into, some of which were very outrageous. Bizarre. I wonder <laughs> if you could share some of the the cases he investigated or the forms that um, paranormal activity took in the 30s.
3: He, uh, there were various transfiguration mediums, people like that, who would um, sit in front of audience and audiences and let their features mutate into those of other people, such as sort of Zulu warriors and Chinese elders. Um, there were people who, who claimed to be able to levitate and whole audiences would uh, testify to seeing them do so. And there were also these mysterious kind of spirits and poltergeists around the country that Fodor went off to investigate. Um, for example, there was uh, on the Isle of Man a creature known as Jeff the Talking Mongoose who uh, was, was um, haunting a cottage a remote cottage on the island um, for, had been haunting it for several years, apparently. Mm. Uh, the father and a teenage daughter, mother, were all uh, testified to this. And the father kept a log of Jeff's uh, boasts and claims. He claimed to be the fifth wonder of the world. And he was a very impertinent and arrogant mongoose and uh, so Fodor went out to investigate him and tried to lure him with um, with chocolates but uh, fa- failed to catch sight of him in the week he spent on the island and was sorely disappointed.
0: When put in the context of all these other cases, why is it the case of Alma Fielding that was so interesting to dig deeper into?
3: Well, Fodor found it interesting, first of all, because it seemed so remarkable they there were lots of people them um, included who witnessed things in her presence which seemed inexplicable by natural means um, gloves moving independently and working their way onto her hands or saucers spinning across the room um, a tin opener sailing down the hallway and she began to produce objects in controlled conditions in the séance room so she would magically, magically objects would appear in the room in which she was present. So there was first of all the sense of wonder and amazement and excitement that here We might get real evidence of the supernatural, something that would make Fodor's name and that of the institute for which he worked and maybe transform the scientific landscape. But as time went on, Fodor also, he became a little more dubious about some of the phenomena, but more fascinated by her psychology And he thought that here he had a subject with whom he might be able to explore and prove a new theory of the supernatural and how it joined up with subconscious uh, repressed wishes and ideas.
0: How were ideas of psychology or psychic force linked to the supernatural in this period? What were the theories that influenced that?
3: Some of the earliest psychical researchers in the late late 19th century had um, linked supernormal events to the subliminal mind, almost anticipating the Freudian idea of the subconscious self. And Fodor and others in the 1930s had um, absorbed Freud's through the ideas of freud himself and they speculated that some of the physical phenomena that psychic individuals seemed able to produce might be uh, real physical events but generated by the force of the subconscious mind um, and this was very controversial the spiritualists didn't like it because it bypassed the idea that um that the dead returned, which was the foundation of spiritualism, and Fodor and his like, very few of them, were um, proposing rather that supernatural events were not caused by the spirits of the dead, but by the secret desires of the living. So it undermined the tenets of spiritualism um, by drawing on the new science of psychoanalysis um, and uh, so it was quite it was quite a daring idea, but importantly, Fodor was not saying that um, that these were sort of delusions or, uh, or something. He was he was saying they were real supernatural events, but but generated by the subconscious.
0: Um, you mentioned a little bit about this in your first answer, but I wonder if you could just tell us a bit more about the specifics of in Alma's case what some of those events um, involved.
3: To begin with, um, the events that around Alma were apparently unbidden and malevolent um, happenings in her own home, quite violent, like uh, chunks of coal flying across the room and embedding themselves in the wall, light bulbs smashing, um, things just, uh, lots and lots of crockery and ornament breaking, uh, so that... She, she the house seemed almost to be under siege from itself. Everything was being smashed up and destroyed. But as the investigation proceeded, some her phenomena became sort of more benign, and um, she was able to do things like go into a branch of Woolworths and without touching anything, emerge from the shop and suddenly find a pearl necklace fastening itself around her neck. So, which uh, which was a phenomena that. Fodor rather teasingly called psychic shoplifting and they had a whole day of psychic shoplifting in Bognor Regis together with all the psychical researchers and Alma having a sort of day trip there Um, and then in the International Institute for Psychical Research where Fodor worked they conducted various experimental seances in which Alma proved able to produce uh, small objects from thin air jewels and ordinary household objects, tins, things from her home and things that she claimed never to have seen before.
0: A thread that you draw out um, that's really interesting is that the fact that Alma was a woman was not irrelevant. Gender did inform the way that Fodor interacted with her in the way that her, her supernatural powers, as it were, were, were viewed. Could you speak a bit more about that?
3: It struck me that um, there was a a very highly charged, uh, flirtatious, even erotic atmosphere between the two of them, as he describes it. There's a lot of uh, touching and holding. And um, it, it occurred to me that in very few other circumstances would a married working class housewife Um, gain this kind of proximity to this exotic cosmopolitan uh, Hungarian uh, figure and his entourage who were very highly educated and refined compared to the Croydon suburb from which she came. So there was a lot of, um, she had some strong motivation to sort of be in the orbit of these people uh, for all sorts of excitement, um, kind of there, the excitement of of the drama of the whole thing, um, a sort of intellectual excitement about all the ideas that were spinning about and also a certain physical excitement. And it was was a way, she wasn't alone. Lots of working class women of the period became mediums or found their way onto the stage or took to addressing huge audiences in order to transmit clairvoyant messages. And they had um, an extraordinary kind of power albeit a very passive power. They they apparently made themselves vessels for the voices of others. They made themselves subjects for um, psychical researchers who were invariably men. Um, So it was a fascinating dynamic to me, the way in which they both sort of found a path to freedom by giving themselves over to Either supernatural impersonations or just opening themselves to the possibility of being possessed and haunted. Um, And so they they gained freedom, they gained power, but only by making themselves into the ultimate passive vessel and recipient of of other spirits and, and other personalities and voices.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast...
3: I did also try to sort of work in in his spirit of, um, of being not skeptical, but open and to assume that there was something interesting and emotionally real going on under the surface.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all.
2: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. dot slash history extra
0: The book, it plays out as a a push and pull almost between Fodor and Alma, almost like a battle of wits. Obviously, you had Fodor's book to get a sense of where he stood on everything. But how did you go about uncovering Alma's side of things?
3: Well... Yes, the book very much is, uh, Fodel's book is very much framed as a kind of explanation for his theories and how he reached them. So it's all channeled towards this particular end and is necessarily selective. Um, and I, as I found when I read the original transcripts of the seances, the investigations, the um, the first visits to Alma's house, these are extremely detailed, and I was, I was impressed. I mean, there was nothing that Fodor had done with the material that was in any way dishonest or, or falsifying. But nonetheless, there are various different stories you could extract from it, and it did enable me to sort of read between the lines of what was going on and to bring my own um, judgments and observations to bear on what the, uh, what the exchanges between them suggested. Uh, and uh, remarkably, you know, it's like reading a huge, um, Well, to a sort of script, an unedited script for a play or something, because they're just uh, every little thing is written down in the séance. And uh, there's hundreds of pages of it. And so sometimes she's speaking in a séance in the voice of one of her spirit guides or possessors, um, being really quite bossy with the other people in the room. At others, she is like a little girl, um, sort of pleading voice and lost. And so you do get this remarkable sense of, of all these different personalities uh, playing through her, whether manufactured or, or accessed by those conditions. And, uh, and I was very interested in that. And I, uh, yeah, I, I could see a lot of tension between them play out in those seances, his irritation with her at times and, and vice versa.
0: Was the source material from the um, research project, was it mainly transcripts or did it have photographs or anything else like that?
3: There were photographs as well. Um, it's uh, It was like a sort of manila folder in the Cambridge uh, archive that I found um, mislabeled as Mr Fielding. So I didn't know when I first went to look at it whether it would have anything about her. And um, there were yeah loads of typed transcripts, but also um, photographs of her in trance and otherwise, photographs of the apports, which is the name given to the objects that she produced. Um, the idea being, it's from the French apporté, and the idea being that they were objects carried from the other world into this one. So the spirits had bestowed them on her. And... Um, there were, there were also quite sort of creepily and fascinatingly x-rays of her body because at one stage Fodor decided to try to check whether she was cheating and tricking them by setting up a portable uh, x-ray scanner in his offices at the Institute.
0: If I'm right, you also met descendants of Alma and Fodor, is that correct?
3: Yes, I'd met. Um, I, ma- I managed to find Alma's grandson Barry, who lives in Devon, and that was another way in which I uh, could get some purchase on how it might have looked to her this whole investigation um, and when I visited him he showed me papers that she had kept from that time her contracts with the institute at one stage they paid her for her weekly for her twice weekly sessions and, um, and also a summons to the high court which came towards the end of the year because Fodor um, not only got in trouble with his own institute but was suing a spiritualist newspaper, for having said he was obsessed with sex and an incompetent psychical researcher. And so there was a libel case in which she um, was summoned to appear. So the sense of the, the drama that this year bestowed on this uh, otherwise ordinary family, um, Alba's husband was a builder and decorator, was quite palpable by looking through the um, the, the records that, that Barry had from his grandmother's life.
0: It's amazing that he still had all those all those things, really.
3: Yeah, and he was also very generous in showing me the photograph albums, and you know, every all, all these, which um, which was also ge- gave me a sense of of who she was that didn't uh, necessarily appear in Fodor's book.
0: I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but by the time you got to the end of your research for the book. How did you come out feeling about Alma? She was a very complex, contradictory in many ways character.
3: Yes, I think she was um she was often quite difficult to like and some of the uh s- some of her, her sort of performances and tricks were so, were quite um, tawdry, quite kind of yeah, unsavory perhaps. And um there was, there was definitely something sort of uh, mischievous to the point of uneasiness about the way she behaved. And it was my task, the task I set myself in a way, to sort of understand why she might have behaved in these ways and the real feelings that, that underpinned her, uh, her often quite sort of malevolent-seeming actions, and I thought that Fodor's interpretation of the sort of roots of her supernatural power was um, was very generous and imaginative too. And uh, although I did I took issue with a few of his emphases and conclusions, I did also try to sort of work in in his spirit of um, of being not sceptical, but open and to assume that there was something interesting and emotionally real going on under the surface
0: Um, I think this story like um, the stories that you've covered in your previous books it's not just an interesting narrative it also tells us something about the age what do you think that the Alma Fielding case tells us about the 1930s?
3: I hadn't realized until I started researching how many ghosts and poltergeists were abroad in Britain in the uh, late 1930s but it's extraordinary reading the papers and seeing all these reports of, uh, of poltergeists and re- re- revenants coming to people in the night and I, and I re- I knew that there'd been a this surge in interest in the supernormal after the Great Slaughter of the First World War. And it seemed to me that it was being revived by the jitters about the impending war because by 1938, everyone was braced for it. You know, Hitler and Mussolini were in the papers all the time. There were sort of um, air raid drills and it, it was expected that soon the planes would be over Britain and bombing the cities. And in this context it seemed that ghosts and poltergeists were both part of the sort of social a way of expressing social and cultural anxieties, and therefore were, could also become channels for personal problems and expressing of those. And I was really intrigued, um, I am intrigued by the way those things knit together, private Uh, private difficulty and and broader social, national, cultural, historical moods. Um, And it seemed a a moment where there was a very distinct mood of anxiety, premonition, apprehension and um, the dread of impending violence and that Alma's private story sort of was woven in with that uh, with her poltergeist, just like many of the poltergeists in, in England.
0: I think a lot of readers will know you from the book Suspicions of Mr. Witcher and your previous book to this, The Wicked Boy, was was also another historical true crime story. How's it been uh, moving from the true crime genre, um, even though it's historically based, into this different um, paranormal realm, as it were?
3: Well, it's very slippery, the paranormal. It's, uh, it was very tricky to find uh, the right tone and the right way of writing about it. Um, but, but, ve- but, I'm, uh, but it's sort of a fascinating project because the paranormal is all about... Um, it, the, the creepiest things are always set on the line between what's factual and what's fictional and the uncertainty about what is and isn't real. And that disquiet um, was what drew me to the story. And I wanted to express through the book. And I I suppose we're living at a disquieting time now. I only realised that when I was sort of into my research that I'd I'd chosen a year, a moment, um, which, which was a very uneasy and apprehensive and the supernatural is able to communicate that in some ways and to tap into that. Um, but on the subject of how um, different, there are also lots of similarities. Um, this is, again, it's another investigation. You know, Fodor was a ghost hunter, so he wasn't looking for a murderer, he was looking for a ghost, and he really wanted to find one <laughs> because people thought he was a sceptic, and he insisted he wasn't. You know, he was, he was really... He wanted a real ghost. Um, and so the, in the investigation, he in almost, a, it's sometimes comically, but sometimes uh, not so much, sometimes more frighteningly, was trying to disentangle, much as a real detective does, um, what's true, what isn't, who's telling the truth who's a reliable witness, what is evidence and what is what are red herrings. And so, so in a way, the process of going through the files and the um, transcripts and looking at the photographs was like a sort of Alice in Wonderland detective story. <laughs> <You know? laughs> detective story turned on its head.
0: Um, my final question, you might not have an answer to, but we'll give it a go. Um, so now that you finish finished this book, have you got any ideas about the kind of story that you might want to cover next?
3: Well, I have got um, unusually. I have got a project I'm already working on because it was commissioned, uh, which is a it's a book about phobias and manias and the history of them.
0: Will that be a would that be a narrative non-fiction or will it no. be no? So
3: first first book, it'll be a so. But I think um, I mean my my. The way I like to operate is narrative, so I'm sure it'll be quite a narrative style compendium. So a collection—you could think of it as collection of um, of of stories, quite anecdotal, but um, but I hope also reasonably, uh, you know, covering the ground, all the different ways in which phobias and manias have been interpreted.
0: That was Kate Summerscale. The Haunting of Alma Fielding was released yesterday, published by Bloomsbury. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for another lecture from our 2019 History Weekends.